Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am your host, Scott Challoner, and today, as always, we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. Joining me first and foremost on the programme today is Jean-Baptiste Noel, the owner of Chez Antoinette Limited, a chain of French restaurants based in London. Chez Antoinette boasts units in the Covent Garden area of the capital, as well as in the Victoria district. Uh, Jean-Baptiste, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning to you. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us. And the whole reason we are here is to, of course, discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I'm sure you'll agree, in the shape of the COVID-19 pandemic, I feel it would be remiss of me if I didn't ask you just to what extent this has affected you and your business over the last few months. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, we did not, nobody expected that. And uh, uh, from one day to the next, we sort of had to close uh, both of our restaurants. Uh, so it's been quite of a nightmare from then. Uh, obviously, uh, the lockdown three months, and then we've been restarting slowly, slowly from uh, um, beginning of May, actually, uh, for Victoria. We really thought... Uh, to try to restart as quickly as possible to make an offering for local community. Uh, we have a lot of requests um, from the people around here and uh, we try to provide some some, some takeaways and deliveries. Uh, and then Covent Garden, which we reopened uh, a little bit uh, uh, later in the 4th of July, like most of the restaurants. And so far, uh, obviously, it's been, uh, it's, been slow. Uh, I think uh, Victoria was saved by, by the fact that been a lot of people around still living around, that all the offices uh, which are not yet back uh, in central London mm-hmm. obviously um, has been the, 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 most, the, the worst factor for us. And Covent Garden, which is a, a touristic area, um, means currently there is absolutely no business there. And with you having to um, adapt to this new reality and sort of bring in these new sort of COVID secure um, procedures to make sure that people are free to come into the restaurants again and also having to adapt to sort of the sort of the less um, quantity of uh, customers, let's say. Is there anything? Uh, yes, ab- yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, we, we really had to adapt a lot. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, first of all, because customers uh, have changed. Um, the, the, the rules have changed, and I think uh, uh, all the COVID secure has been has been something quite um, easy for us to set up in a way. Uh, it's something we do anyway, like keeping clean and and uh, bring, bring, bringing new factors. Well, something which has not been um, obviously uh, ideal is the social distancing. Uh, it remains the biggest uh, impact for us in a restaurant. Uh, we're losing spaces, and uh, uh, as I said, customers don't want to feel in a too much crowded uh, into an area, and I think it will take some time for for the customers to feel really uh, willing to be um, inside uh, in a crowded area. So, so yeah, that that's been a, a biggest impact for us. 
And I can imagine that you certainly learnt an awful lot in your leadership capacity having to to deal with all of this, uh, because what this pandemic has reminded us is that even when we're in leadership positions, it's a constant process of learning and we've really had our ability to be reactive to new events and new restrictions tested during this time, haven't we? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I would not say, uh, you know, it, the, the biggest test, of course, has been to, to the biggest, sorry, uh, really the biggest test has been to uh, for us uh, to look at the, the staffing, um, how to make them feel safe, how to protect the customers and the staff, uh, and also to protect their job, really, um, uh, and to protect our businesses at the same time. Uh, luckily for us, we have had the, the, the furlough, which allowed us to keep most of our staff. Um, but in terms of managing uh, the expectations and going back to a, a brand new business, um, even for, for the staff, really, uh, we have had to manage motivation, bring them back to work, make them feel, you know, um, really uh, part of a new project. You know, um, the team were working in a very, very busy environment for both restaurants were very busy. And now to be there uh, waiting for customers, uh, you've got to, to, you know, to to, to be fully empowering the the manager to to, to drive all the guys, you know, as much as Mm. possible. And with all of this in mind, just how important do you think that safeguarding mental health is in leadership? Not just, of course, in terms of looking after your own, but also that of the employees and other people around you. Oh, very much. You know, during the lockdown, actually, uh, I was regularly contacting the guys um, simply because I could feel, you know, I was uh, losing them mentally, you know, uh, staying at home. They could not see a future. And mind you, we are a restaurant business, so we work with a lot of youngsters. They are not used to be, you know, um, I think told to, to stay home or, uh, and actually they were a bit more worried, uh, than us. Uh, they, uh, for, for, for brand young, young people, you know, they, they want to be uh, enjoying their life at the moment and to be told, you know, you have to stay home. And I think the worst, um, is a lack of, of future. Or vision of the future. So yes, they've been really mentally affected. I think. Um, yeah. Yep, can certainly understand where you're coming from uh, from that point of view, uh, Jean Baptiste. And um, just sort of taking a little bit of a sort of backward step now and shifting the focus ever so uh, slightly. Um, I understand, of course, that you've been in charge of um, your own business, Chez Antoinette, now for two years. I think um, I'm correct in saying, yeah, and that, that followed. Correct. And that followed, of course, a decade-long career um, in another area of the hospitality sector with the Millennium and Copthorne Hotels. Um, but what was the um, the moment for you, do you think, where you realised going into business for yourself and running a business is going to be the way forward for you? Well, uh, my wife started uh, in 2014 um, with Chez Antoinette. Uh, I've met her and we sort of, uh, created this, this business. She really wanted to have her own restaurant. And uh, to be fair, at the beginning, I was like, yes, you know, I heard a lot of people wanting to own, to have their own business, but uh, it's much easier said than done. And, um, you know, uh, she started it, and I, I, I always helped her to develop it. And I think it came to my point of career. You know, I, find, I was GM for five years, uh, as you said, in Nice Beach. 
uh, and I had the choice of either, you know, developing my career, uh, maybe become one day a CEO of, um, of multiple hotels, uh, or uh, to, to take my own chance and try to, to really be um, the new owner of, uh, of a business. Uh, and so we decided to, to join forces, and uh, we could open a, uh, another restaurant together, which we did in Victoria, with the aim of uh, developing a little bit further. Uh, and that was uh, uh, about uh, in 2014, yes. Mm, and it certainly worked out really, really well. I suppose at the time that you didn't expect to be facing the challenge of COVID-19 looming on the uh, the horizon, of course. But I think for the experience of having got through this, it's certainly going to be one to galvanise the, uh, the business, if anything. And in light of the fact that you have not just, of course, launched your own business, but you've also really sort of pushed through this most recent uh, challenge. If you actually had to give some advice to somebody who is maybe looking to start a business themselves, what sort of advice would you give them? Them to get them on the road to success based on your own experience? I think what's most important of it all when you, when you launch a business is make sure you know uh, the field of what you're going into. We see a lot of people in, in the restaurant industry that, you know, coming, they, they, they work from finance and they came with guests, uh, uh, some nice capital, but more necessarily is the understanding of what it is to really be owning a, a business. You've got to do everything. You know, um, uh, today, uh, I am the, the maintenance manager, the account manager, the HR manager. The, you really have to, to take so much more on your shoulders. So, so, so you have to be ready uh, uh, as much as possible and tick all the boxes before you get started. Uh, I think it takes time to prepare um, just to start something. And I think um, uh, preparation is, is the most important to me. I think, uh, you know, the right also... Um, understanding of where you want to be located, uh, depending on what you do, uh, obviously. Uh, but for us, restaurant industry, it is the most important location. Uh, and of course, uh, delivering the, the quality and, and consistency that uh, you set at uh, your level of restaurant. Now, unfortunately, John Baptiste, our time on the uh, the program this morning is drawing to a close. But just before we do wrap things up, um, having talked about the past, let's um, discuss the future. We know that over the next 12 months or so, we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal in the way that we work and the way that we live. Um, but over this period of time, where do you see Chez Antoinette being in 12 months time? What is the business really hoping to achieve? Well, first of all, what we are hoping to achieve is, is to stay open uh, over you know the next twelve months. Um, there are possibilities that we, we are again being told to close, and I think that could be fatal. Um, uh, it is too long as if we are not helped uh, like we have been in the past. I think uh, if we can carry on the way we are going today, I think we should be able to to survive, and then. Uh, Hopefully, uh, after the winter time, brighter days will arise and uh, we'll start slowly to see a recovery um, that will continue until the end of next year. And I'm hoping uh, to see uh, Easter 2022 to be sort of back to normal. And uh, obviously, uh, not having the social distancing involved, not having to worry about, you know, uh, uh, reducing the amount of seats um, and, and obviously being able to do what we do 
you know, which is serving people, giving fun, um, give customers great experience, really. And let's certainly hope that that proves to uh, to be the case. I wish the business all the uh, the luck in the world over the uh, the next few months because it is going to be a very uncertain time. And in light of that fact, John Baptiste, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up in future and perhaps have you back on the show with us just to see how things are getting on in maybe six or seven months' time. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. I've really enjoyed having you joining us on the uh, the programme today. It's been a real pleasure. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with all going on as well. Okay, thank you. You too, sir. Thank you ever so much, Jean-Baptiste. Um, I was speaking on the programme today to Jean-Baptiste Noel, the owner of Chez Antoinette in London. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett himself enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, and also held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery 
whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? 
Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary 
often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.